All right, our first speaker this morning is Dr. Ron Mitsuyasu, whom I've introduced to you already. Ron is a professor of medicine at UCLA here in Los Angeles and has been one of the leaders in HIV-related malignancies for many years now. Ron is going to talk to us about advances toward a cure in HIV infection. All right, and good morning. Um, let me also uh, extend my welcome to all of you uh, here today, and uh, welcome to UCLA. Um, I hope uh, this is a good venue for you all. I know it's a little difficult um, getting here from some parts of the city and parking, but uh, we felt that this was a, a, a nice place to have the meeting. So at uh, the CORI meeting this year, there were lots of um, uh, presentations and a lot of interest uh, in the subject of HIV cure. And um, as I was listening to many of these talks, um, it was clear to me that um, uh, in this age of um, anti-intellectualism, it seems, um, that uh, the uh, work that's been being done in HIV cure really um, is very illustrative and uh, epitomizes, I think, how science works, and that is uh, many small discoveries uh, and incremental improvements um, in our understanding of pathogenesis and pathobiology ultimately can lead to new and better treatments for many of our diseases. And I think um, uh, of, all the, of all the things that were discussed at Croy, Croy this year, uh, there were uh, very clear evidence that uh, we're making uh, progress towards understanding both why it's so difficult to cure HIV and then the approaches that we might use uh, to better control it. So I'm going to come at this from a, a clinical standpoint since I'm not a molecular virologist and I don't have a laboratory. Uh, so please excuse me if um, some of the things don't seem as clear as they might. Okay, so these are um, my uh, financial uh, relationships. Um, they're all gene therapy companies, by the way. Um, these are the learning objectives, um, which we'll reiterate in a minute. Uh, but let's proceed on to the first ARS question. Um, so uh, the question is, which of the following represents a functional cure strategy for HIV? And your choices are one, treatment with latency reversing agents, uh, two, very early ART intervention uh, in HIV infection, CCR5 gene disruption, uh, the Berlin patient, uh, broadly neutralizing antibody therapy, uh, program death uh, ligand 1 inhibition or PDL1 inhibition. Uh, or post-antiretroviral uh, controllers, such as the Visconti cohort. And then you have a, a, a default of, I don't know if you don't know. <laughs> so please select your, your response. Oh, there we go. Sorry about that. Okay, um, so uh, quite a mix of, of different choices. Um, 
ranging from uh, treatment with latency reversing agents, very early treatment, um, as well as um, uh, post antiretroviral controllers and I don't know. And uh, we'll talk uh, about this in a minute. The second question is, uh, which of the following is not a barrier to achieving cure for HIV? So this is a, a negative question. Um, so the things that, uh, the, the one I want you to choose is the one that's not preventing us from uh, achieving a cure. So number one is long-lived cellular reservoirs for HIV. The second is sanctuary sites. Uh, the third is suboptimal immune control. Uh, number four is the toxicity of eradication strategies. Uh, number five is long-term toxicities and complications of antiretroviral therapy. And the six is I don't know. Uh, so please make your selection. Okay, um, so the answer is long-term toxicities and complications of antiretroviral therapy. Uh, the others, as you'll hear about in a minute, um, can um, uh, interfere or cause barriers to our achieving a control. Uh, so this is how I'm going to go through my discussion this morning. We're going to talk uh, about the difference between HIV remission and eradication. We'll talk about how we can reduce HIV reservoirs, which is one of the major sanctuary sites, if you will, for HIV. And then we'll talk about some of the current strategies and some of the data that was presented with regards to clinical studies with regards to uh, curing HIV. And then we'll talk a little bit about combi combining strategies in order to uh, achieve this. Um, so this is uh, uh, one way in which you, one can classify the uh, different approaches to curing HIV. Uh, obviously, the eradicative cure is one in which one uh, can fully uh, remove uh, uh, all evidence of HIV from the host. And so far, there's only one individual for whom that applies, and that's Timothy Ray Brown, or the Berlin patient. Uh, functional cures um, uh, consists of uh, a way of controlling HIV without antiretroviral therapy. Um, and, and so there are a number of uh, potential examples for this. Uh, one would be elite controllers, uh, the Visconti cohort, that is uh, individuals um, who have uh, long-term control of their HIV after antiretroviral therapy and then come off antiviral therapy. Um, and then there's something called a hybrid cure, uh, to use John Mellor's phrase. And a hybrid cure is really um, a way of combining uh, two uh, approaches. One is to um, uh, reduce the functional reservoir for HIV, and then to improve the immune control uh, of uh, HIV without antiretroviral therapy. And it's this latter approach which uh, I think holds the most uh, promise at the moment. Okay, I think we're all aware of the fact that antiretroviral therapy is in fact quite good at suppressing HIV replication. Um, however, even after many years, in fact decades of antiviral therapy, if one were to stop 
the treatment, uh, as you all know, you get a rebound in, in viremia and increase in viral replication. <clears throat> so one of the concepts was uh, if you can treat patients very early, will that then decrease the amount of virus in the HIV reservoir and thereby make it easier to uh, remove HIV from the patient? Uh, and so uh, a, a number of individuals have looked at uh, the stage at which antiviral therapy is started um, and, uh, and then to look at the amount of time it takes for patients to rebound once uh, they undergo a treatment interruption. And for most uh, chronically infected individuals um, in whom antiviral therapy is started beyond acute infection, uh, one sees that the recurrence is fairly quickly, fairly quick, within a, a couple of days to a couple of weeks. On the other hand, if you were to go earlier and, and uh, find individuals in the acute infection, infectious state, and then this is broken down by the FEBIC stage, which uh, separates patients into very early, uh, middle level, and then uh, late early, uh, infections, you see that uh, there is an extension of the time uh, before vir viral relapse uh, the earlier you treat the individuals. Now, there are several mechanisms by which we believe HIV persists in the host. Um, one possibility is there may be persistent active viral replication in cells or in tissues of the body um, that are not controlled by the antiviral therapy that the patient is on. Uh, more likely, and what most of us believe now, is that there are uh, latent reservoirs which are not subject to the effects of antiretroviral uh, therapy in which, this, in which the HIV can reside for long periods of time uh, because they uh, infect long-lived cells. Uh, and this will result in um, the long-term survival of uh, these virally um, infected cells, or as has been shown recently by a number of investigators and a number of these presentations were made at CROI this year, um, these uh, latently infected cells can also undergo some T cell proliferation, thus replenishing the reservoir, uh, even in the absence of uh, ongoing HIV replication. Uh, so that's not such a good thing, but um, it, it does appear to be the case in uh, some individuals. As I mentioned before, uh, so far there's only been one individual fully cured uh, with eradication of his HIV, and that's Timothy Ray Brown. Uh, he underwent a very aggressive treatment. Uh, he uh, had a stem cell transplant on two occasions for his acute myelogenous leukemia, uh, received an allogeneic uh, transplant from a, a CCR5 Delta 32 homozygous donor, and also received a number of biologic agents as well as chemotherapy in the process of trying to get rid of his leukemia. Uh, so uh, he is the one individual who has now been followed out beyond 10 years. It says seven years here, but it's actually 10 years. Uh, with no evidence of replicating virus um, found in any of his tissues. Um, now, obviously, this is not a very practical uh, approach. Uh, it would require very intensive treatment, and for individuals who are doing well on antiviral therapy, um, the risks kind of outweigh the benefit. 
Um, other uh, groups have looked at um, uh, other transplanted uh, individuals. Um, uh, you may have heard about the Boston patients. Uh, these are individuals who also underwent um, uh, autologous uh, or allogeneic stem cell transplants for hematologic diseases. And uh, in these individuals, um, after uh, their antiretroviral therapy was discontinued after varying periods of time, uh, it, it, it took a long while, but they did ultimately relapse, uh, suggesting that these uh, reservoirs are, in fact, very long-lived. And you may even only need a few viruses in order to get uh, relapse. Uh, hmm. There's a slide missing, but in any case. So um, it's been estimated that um, given the half-life of, of these, of these uh, latently infected cells, it would take probably over 70 years uh, to get rid of all the virus in a host. And so realistically, it would take an entire lifetime, if not more, uh, for uh, someone to spontaneously clear all of his virus in the presence of antiviral therapy. Uh, so we need to come up with better strategies. And, and uh, uh, the scenario shown on this slide uh, is one possible way of doing that. Obviously, we'd like to limit the establishment of the reservoirs, so treating them as early as possible in infection uh, is important. Uh, we'd also like to reduce the size of the reservoir, and there are several approaches to this. Uh, including flushing out uh, the latent reservoir, the so-called shock-and-kill or kick-and-kill approach. Uh, one can directly target um, and destroy HIV-infected cells, and this is a concept behind uh, chemotherapy and uh, other uh, directly uh, targeted approaches for HIV. Uh, and one can also uh, try to... Um, um, Oh, render uninfected cells uh, protected from HIV, and this is the concept behind gene therapy. Um, in addition, it's, it's possible that we may be able to improve immunity against HIV and have the host endogenously control his own HIV infection. And the strategies that are being uh, proposed include HIV-specific vaccines, as well as very, uh, various other immunotherapy approaches. All right, well, one of the um, confounders of, of getting rid of all of these latently infected cells is that uh, HIV tends to hide out, if you will, in memory T cells. And uh, over the last few years, it's uh, been demonstrated that uh, memory T cells exist in many uh, varieties uh, and at different stages of, um, of maturation ranging from an early stem cell, memory cell, all the way out to a terminally differentiated memory cells. And uh, these cells are distinguished by the types of cytokines they produce and the effects that they have, either in terms of their survival or in terms of, uh, of undergoing activation and apoptosis. Unfortunately, uh, the vast majority of the latently infected virus that exists in a patient with HIV uh, resides in the uh, central memory and the stem cell memory. And these are, are the longest lived of, uh, of these diverse uh, CD4 T cells. 
in addition, it's been uh, found that uh, follicular helper cells, that, that is uh, the CD4 cells that exist within the germinal centers of B cell follicles, uh, can also be reservoirs for HIV. Uh, and this may be because of the fact that uh, these, uh, these follicles tend to exclude uh, CD8 cytotoxic cells. And so um, these cells may, in fact, be, um, uh, be immune uh, or at least reside in an immune sanctuary where we cannot get rid of those viruses through natural means. And so this re may remain another potential barrier. Uh, another uh, factor that we need to consider is how do we measure the reservoir and how do we know when we've gotten rid of all the virus? Uh, and there are uh, several uh, assays that are being used by the virologists uh, in order to quantitate the amount of virus uh, that remains in low levels within patients with HIV. And uh, the major ones uh, being uh, measurements of DNA and RNA uh, as you all know, um, may in fact overestimate the amount of virus that uh, truly exists because some of this DNA and RNA may be defective and not really replication competent. Uh, one can look at, um, at, at other things such as uh, the expression of HIV proteins uh, or limiting dilution type assays. Uh, but the standard assay, or at least the gold standard assay, tends to be the uh, quantitative viral outgrowth assay, uh, which unfortunately requires large numbers of cells and takes a long time uh, to do, in which you culture small numbers of cells with uh, uninfected cells and then measure how much virus actually is produced. So uh, turning now to um, the so-called shock and kill approach, the concept here is that um, the latently infected virus, when exposed to certain what we call latency reversing agents, um, uh, start to express virus and then undergo uh, cellular death as a result of that. At the same time, uh, uninfected cells are protected against uh, further infection uh, in the presence of antiretroviral therapy. Uh, so this is the concept. Now, a number of, um, of studies have been done, both in vitro and in vivo, using, um, it, in the first place, um, uh, HDAC inhibitors, that's uh, histone deacetylase inhibitors, which act at the epigenomic level of DNA. And, and, and these agents uh, uh, have been shown to in, increase uh, viral replication uh, to some degree, even in patients that are fully suppressed on antiviral therapy. However, they don't seem to reduce the reservoir size, um, uh, even after multiple doses. And so future strategies uh, using, using this similar type of approach uh, may require multiple latency-reducing agents in combination, or the use of combinations of these agents with other approaches, such as immune approaches or genetic approaches. Uh, recently, there's been interest in uh, using uh, immune agonists, such as uh, the toll-like receptor 7 agonist, or TLR7 agonist, that stimulates not only proliferation of virus within latently infected cells, but also activates uh, NK cells uh, and other um, 
uh, cells that can help um, clear virus uh, from the host. And so uh, this is a particularly uh, interesting um, agent uh, that uh, has been used both by itself and in combination with vaccines. Now, um, fortunately, there are a number of, of, of proposed mechanisms by which HIV uh, maintains uh, latency within the host. And this is a, a nice diagram from Doug Richmond's uh, review article that shows that in addition to the HDAC inhibitors, that there are other uh, potential targets, including um, uh, gamma uh, cytokines such as IL-7 and IL-15, which can stimulate uh, HIV uh, out of latency. Uh, the bromodomain-4 uh, drugs, which uh, similarly can stimulate virus replication. And then protein kinase C agonists, uh, such as prostatin or, or bryostatin, uh, which can do similar uh, sorts of things. And many of these agents uh, have been uh, utilized in cancer therapy uh, for very similar reasons, that we hope to be able to activate and destroy cancer cells, um, and in this case, HIV-infected cells. So just to show you some data, this is in vitro data uh, using a number of uh, both HDAC inhibitors and a few other LRAs. And you can see that with single uh, drug um, that you get a little bit, but not very much in terms of uh, stimulation of virus expression. On the other hand, when you start combining these agents, uh, two or three agents, we get considerably more uh, virus expression. And so it, it's very probable that we're going to need to use multiple agents in order to affect the best level of shock, if you will. Um, in vivo, there's also been a number of clinical trials uh, using either single dose or multiple doses uh, of HDAC inhibitors, and, and this shows a number of studies that I'm not going to go into in detail, um, involving varinostat, panobinostat, and romadepsin, uh, which are three of these uh, drugs, uh, as well as disulfiram, which uh, is also an LRA, uh, which is all, all have been shown to increase viral expression in vitro. Um, in patients, we do get... Um, a little bit of, of uh, viral uh, stimulation, as you can see, particularly with multiple dose uh, romadepsin. Uh, but unfortunately, if one measures or, or measures the, late, the amount of latently infected cells that reside in the patient after these treatments, we see that we don't get very much of a reduction. Uh, and this is um, the unfortunate thing. Uh, another approach that has received a lot of attention are immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, some of you may be aware that these agents have been shown to be quite uh, important and effective in cancer immunotherapies. And um, in HIV, we know that the HIV-infected cells, including some of the latently infected cells, uh, express um, on their surface uh, receptors uh, to these immune um, checkpoint molecules, such as PD-1. Um, therefore, by uh, exposing these, um, these cells in these patients uh, to monoclonal antibodies against uh, these receptors, one can uh, both stimulate HIV replication 
and perhaps also um, improve uh, targeted immunity against uh, those cells. And, um, and, and so this is another area of active investigation. Uh, these drugs uh, do have a number of potential side effects that are, can be quite uh, troublesome, including uh, inducement of autoimmune disorders. And so they have to be used, I think, very cautiously and under close supervision. Okay, um, this is uh, some data uh, that was uh, uh, published uh, not very long, long ago. I believe this is from uh, Dan Baruch's group, uh, which used a, a TLR7 uh, agonist uh, in combination with an adenovirus uh, MVA vaccine to HIV uh, in CHIV-infected uh, monkeys. And uh, what you can see here is that um, uh, when you uh, combine the two agents compared to each of the agents alone or to sham uh, uh, treatment, uh, that one gets both a, a, a lower level of viral rebound and a delay in viral rebound uh, compared to the single drugs and uh, compared to no treatment at all. And so uh, we believe that, that this approach uh, may have some additional effects in suppressing HIV replication. Uh, similarly, there was a report uh, at CROI this year in which um, uh, individuals who were initially treated with a uh, BNAB, a broadly neutralizing antibody, in this case BCN01, um, after they, uh, in the acute stage, after they um, had been on treatment for 24 weeks, they were then exposed to uh, a combination of uh, vaccination uh, or vaccination with uh, three doses of romadepsin. Uh, and then they underwent a treatment interruption, um, as you can see here, at week seven. Now, the vast majority, or, or ma many of the patients, uh, eight of the uh, 13 patients, did rebound quite rapidly within four weeks, which is what you would expect uh, for individuals who were not treated with um, other agents. Uh, but there were five of these individuals who had a much slower rebound uh, and variations in the, in the course of, of uh, viremia uh, post-treatment. So uh, it does suggest that there may be uh, some additional immunologic benefit that is playing out here that may uh, help control virus. Okay, um, now in the pediatric world, it, it's been uh, suggested that if we can use uh, some of these broadly neutralizing antibodies that are very effective uh, early on, uh, that we might be able to prevent or delay the rebound in viremia um, in these patients. And so um, this is yet another um, study uh, with the uh, VRC01 uh, BNAB that was given to individuals with HIV infection. And you can see that there are differences in uh, rebound uh, uh, based predominantly on the amount of uh, antibodies that were given to the patients and when they were given, either early or later in their, in their treatment course. Uh, to potentiate this effect, uh, uh, multiple BNABs may also be necessary. 
uh, and what you can see here in another presentation at Croy uh, is that when you um, compare combinations of BNABs, which are the blue and the green lines, compared to uh, VRC07, which is a uh, another uh, BNAB that's a little more potent than uh, VRCO1, uh, that you get, um, uh, that you require uh, less uh, BNAB to uh, affect a 50% uh, control of HIV. Uh, and, uh, and, and so the combination approach uh, seems to be more potent. Uh, so, uh, to uh, approach the patient with chronic HIV infection is probably going to require multiple, uh, multiple approaches, including uh, suppression of virus, of course, uh, an attempt to reduce the viral res reservoir and to uh, improve immune uh, surveillance, as well as to reduce immune activation. Uh, and uh, that it may be, and that this uh, may be possible using combination of, um, of uh, latency reversing agents, monoclonal antibodies, uh, vaccines, uh, checkpoint blockers, anti-inflammatory agents, um, engineered T cells, and gene therapy. Now, turning to gene therapy, uh, gene therapy can uh, block HIV in several ways. One, it can either prevent uh, infection of uninfected T cells, uh, such as with uh, CCR5 uh, disruption. One can try to target HIV um, inactivation, uh, either uh, with, um, uh, with uh, antisense or other uh, directly acting um, genes that uh, inhibit uh, uh, productive genes in HIV. Or one, one can use gene therapy to enhance immune function. Uh, and this is the concept behind um, the CART therapy, this chimeric antigen receptor T cells, uh, which have also been shown to be quite effective in certain types of uh, hematologic malignancies. And we we're fortunate to have Carl June from the University of Pennsylvania do one of the plenary talks at CROI this year uh, discussing this uh, latter approach. Um, so as I indicated, uh, you can either uh, try to inhibit or kill HIV using various genes, or one can uh, try to um, in, uh, introduce a gene that <clears throat> may block or prevent uh, further HIV infection of cells. Uh, in this latter regards, uh, uh, we and others have done a number of studies with something called zinc finger nucleases targeted to CCR5 gene. These studies, which were initially done in CD4 cells alone, uh, were shown to be safe and well-tolerated when uh, given back to patients um, who underwent autologous uh, transplants. Um, in addition, we saw fairly durable increases in CD4 uh, counts as well as total lymphocyte counts. And uh, in a study that uh, Pablo Tibas published in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago, uh, one can also see some small decline in the HIV viral reservoirs. Um, 
Um, turning to these uh, CAR T cells that I mentioned earlier, um, uh, there are means by which one can um, uh, introduce genes that will trigger or stimulate in certain types of <laughs> HIV specific. You can just turn off the phones, Connie. Sorry about that. Uh, uh, one can um, uh, stimulate um, immunity uh, or immune function in these T cells. And so the initial studies that we did, uh, believe it or not, back in 1997 through 2000, uh, introduced something called the CD4 zeta gene into T cells of patients with HIV. Uh, this was before the era that we had very effective antiviral therapy. But um, what we were able to demonstrate is that one could safely give these cells back to patients, uh, that one could see some enhancement of CD4-type immunity and CD8-type immunity. However, it wasn't sufficient enough to control HIV. And uh, just to um, show you here, um, we've also uh, been following these patients for now out to 17 years, and one can uh, still um, detect some of these CD4 zeta T cells uh, in these patients. So they, they, they uh, do remain and, are, and can be re-stimulated uh, um, um, over a long period of time. Uh, we do need to make these more effective uh, and perhaps combine them with other things in order to see a decline in viral reservoir, however. And finally, um, there's another um, type of treatment that is making uh, news in the oncology um, literature. And these are uh, so-called dual affinity retargeting proteins, or DART, uh, sometimes also called bispecific T-cell engagers. And what these, uh, what these agents do is they uh, bring either the cancer or, in our case, infected CD4 cells in close proximity to uh, effector CD8 or cytotoxic cells. And by doing this, not only do you um, uh, allow the um, uh, direct um, lysis of these cells, uh, but you also uh, enhance the, uh, uh, the um, specificity and stimulate the development of more CD8 cells. Uh, so it's possible that uh, these uh, newer agents may also help um, in our uh, attempt to control HIV. Uh, so I hope I've shown you that, uh, uh, that perhaps the best way to control HIV is going to be through a combinatorial approach uh, of both controlling the reservoir and to enhancing immune surveillance. Uh, and that by combining these two approaches that we hopefully will be able to get durable remission, uh, if not true eradication. Um, okay, so I think I'll end there uh, and see if you have any questions. Thank you. Any questions? You can come to the microphones or pass uh, a question card over. Okay, thank you. All right, so the question is, uh, many of the monoclonal antibodies are associated with immunosuppression. 
uh, inopportunistic infections, uh, such as fungal infections and TB? Uh, would it not be risky to initiate such uh, medications in patients who are already immunodeficient? Well, it depends on the monoclonal antibody that we're talking about, obviously. Um, the advantage of monoclonal antibodies, as you know, is you can make them quite specific uh, to whatever you're, you're targeting. Um, in, in the cases of immune checkpoint inhibitors, for example, the monoclonal antibodies are targeted either to CTL, uh, CTLA4 or to PDL1. Uh, and they're only specific for those uh, particular molecules. Um, so uh, in, in that case, if anything, one gets a stimulation of immune function because you're relieving the, um, the regulation or the inhibition of normal immunity that uh, occurs as a result of the cancer or the infection uh, that is trying to maintain itself. So you basically overcome that inhibition of immunity and thereby increase uh, immune function. So it works both ways. Um, I think that uh, depending on the uh, antibody that you're using, it may be beneficial or potentially it could be detrimental. But obviously we wouldn't want to use the detrimental ones. Yes? Uh, David Lintz, AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Um, why, uh, what is the mechanism that the Boston patient failed? Well, I, uh, the, the patients, um, well, there are a couple of possibilities. One is that um, allogeneic transplant in and of itself is not enough, that if, if uh, by removing the cells, you, there may be still re residual cells or sanctuary sites uh, that are not cleared. And one of the thoughts with the, um, uh, with the um, Berlin patient is that that patient got an allogeneic transplant that was allowed for some graft-versus-host or graft-versus-HIV um, to uh, help clear those residual cells. Um, um, yeah, so I think I, there, there, there are clearly some differences, and those patients got autologous cells back, uh, the Boston patients. Uh, they were not uh, CCR5 protected, for example. Uh, so it's possible that even if there was a residual virus there, that it could have infected those new cells. And after a period of time, they reemerged. And that's why, uh, unfortunately, the patients rebounded. Just a, a quick second question. Uh, what do you think is the pathogenesis in the uh, light controller patient? That is someone who might have uh, CD4 cells greater than 500 and uh, viral load that's fully suppressed. Um, so why are there elite controllers? Uh, what do you think is, is, that is the, the pathogenesis that they're able to have that control uh, without therapy, although I know there's controversy yeah, about yeah. No, inflammation? I, I, that, that's an excellent question. I think people are obviously want to know why some individuals do very well, uh, even off antiretroviral therapy. Uh, and this may have something to do with their immune response, uh, that they have the appropriate type and amount uh, of inhibitory um, immune function against HIV that it just doesn't reach the point where uh, it's uh, measurable or problematic. Thank you. Uh, Mike Fitzgibbons from Santa Ana. Uh, using a CRISPR-Cas9 system mm -hmm. in a 
ideal world, what would you target on the virus, or would you prefer to target uh, post-immune uh, receptors? Yeah, no, uh, that's a great question. There, there are a number of groups that are now developing uh, uh, a CRISPR-Cas9 type approaches, uh, mostly to, as you said, to target HIV-specific genes within cells. Um, they could be uh, almost any of them. It could be a, a TAT, for example. Uh, it could be the polymerase. Uh, it could be a number of different genes within HIV that could potentially be approached that way. Um, uh, so I, I can't rightly say which one would be my favorite. <laughs> and just to follow up, um, I know that Sangamo was pursuing zinc fingers, and yes. they had a couple of patients who actually suppressed. Yes. Do you have any follow-up on those patients? Uh, you mean suppressed off treatment? Right. Um, well, uh, the, the only ones that I'm aware of are the ones that Pablo described. Um, and uh, I don't have any knowledge of how they've done subsequently, but uh, the patients that we treated here in LA and as part of the Sangamo-sponsored study uh, most of them had um, very modest, if any, suppression, additional suppression of virus even um, or, or during treatment interruptions, that what we did see was a marked increase in lymphocyte numbers and CD4 numbers, uh, which does suggest that there may be some additional effects, be it either immunologic effects or otherwise, or T-cell stimulatory effects. Uh, so a lot of work has been done to try to sort that out. Um, but I don't have knowledge, unfortunately, about the, the two that suppress fully. Okay, thank you very much.